Join Edwin Frondozo on the Business Leadership Podcast every week for a unique program featuring insights and actionable items from the world's most successful business leaders. Hear firsthand the exclusive interviews and personal journeys on how today's transformational leaders made it to the top. If your goal is a six-pack, don't fall in love with a six-pack. Fall in love with uh, never eating a carb and going to the gym for four hours a day and not hanging out with your friends and not drinking beer. Fall in love with that, and then you'll get the end result. And if you want to build a business from scratch and bootstrap it, you know, don't fall in love with the end game. Fall in love with the sleepless nights, you know, the, the struggle and the grind that it takes to get there. This is the Business of Leadership Podcast, and my name is Edwin Frondozo. Welcome. How are you doing today? Thank you for joining me today. This is episode number 63, and my guest is Mike Wessinger. He is the founder and chief executive officer at Point Click Care, Canada's largest private software company and industry-leading innovator in the efforts to solve the global challenges of senior healthcare. Today, Point Click Care employs over 1,400 employees who currently serve over 15,000 care providers across North America. In our conversation, we discuss how a company's culture can help bring bright people to the team, the differences between chasing markets versus sales opportunities, and lastly, creating a mindset of building a company that's durable for the long term versus being acquired. Our sponsors today are Pungo Payments, a business payment solution that instantly sends disbursements and electronic transfers at a fraction of the cost of checks and bank transfers. Go to thebusinessleadership.com slash pungo to learn more. Also, the Business Leadership Podcast is a friend of ITWC Podcast Network and supported by our media partners at IT World Canada. Thank you to those who have left me comments and rated me on iTunes. This this latest one is from Trya. They write, amazing show. Love hearing stories of other entrepreneurs, especially from Canada. I really love hearing from all of you. So thank you again for the feedback. And if you do decide to leave me a review, I will read it out on the next episode. Now, here we go. Thank you for joining us on the Business Leadership Podcast, Mike. Great to be here. Let's just start off by introducing yourself. Who is Mike and what does he like to do when he's not growing or, or scaling businesses? Yeah, you know, I think uh, as a father of uh, you know, 10 and 12-year-old daughters, uh, you know, family comes first. So they keep me uh, pretty busy. They've got a lot of activities. And, you know, my wife and I decided a few years ago that we... Um, you know, taking them to yet another beach, it didn't matter where they were, they all looked about the same. So we started to travel a lot with the kids. So I tend to spend a lot of time uh, traveling with the kids. We uh, we ski a lot up, up north on the weekends, so that uh, ties up our, our weekends in the winter. And then, you know, it gets uh, me time I like to spend, you know, obviously I love skiing uh, even without the kids, uh, you know, heading out uh, west doing some backcountry stuff and uh, a little bit of golf and, you know, and then just general fitness, you know. We got a CrossFit gym in the office here, so I spend some time doing that and hiking, cycling, just sort of stuff to you know keep uh, keep physically uh, in shape and mentally in shape. Well, it sounds like you got all all the seasons covered with the things that you're doing. Question for you: I mean, I used to be a snowboard instructor. I used to do a lot of snowboarding and used to ski. Do you try to ski all year round? Is the, is there a favorite spot? Yeah, I think the, uh, the favorite spot the last few years has been cat skiing out in uh, Island Lake Lodge. It's uh, in Fernie, BC, just north of the Montana border. It's um, uh, I enjoy getting out there every year. Tried 
tried uh, skiing in Valdez, Alaska this year. Uh, wasn't wow. wasn't a great year for it, but uh, mm-hmm. heli skiing is always fun. Uh, but generally, you know, the weekends are uh, you know just heading up north here. And now, you know, the, I try to talk my wife into uh, you know heading down to uh, uh, Santiago, Chile, yes. ski in the summer. Uh, I haven't convinced her yet, but I think I may have to do it without her uh, uh, next summer. Mike, why don't you tell us about Point Click Care, your company? Tell us your current role and and perhaps what you're trying to accomplish now, maybe in the next twelve months. Yeah. So the. Um, you know, I'm the founder and the CEO of the company, and you know, the c- company started as a one-man operation. We've got some 1,500 people here today, and uh, you know, I've been uh, very lucky with the you know, the team that's joined me that I I still I still get to to lead the company. So it, it's a real pleasure for me. You know, uh, what we're trying to do, you know, our you know mission is really to prepare the world for an aging population, and for us, that we do that through long-term post-acute care providers. So we continue to try and move across the continuum. We started in you know nursing homes and skilled nursing buildings, and have moved on to assisted living and home care. And now we're putting technology into people's homes so they can age in place. So we continue to sort of expand and and you know, deliver more and more technology so that uh, you know that we can prepare for this silver tsunami that's coming in aging population. Well, when I look at, you know, what I do every day and, you know, we've got a great team of people that, you know, that, uh, that build, sell and deliver software. They do a great job of that. Um, you know, I look at my role as the CEO is, you know, number one, I need to focus on getting the right culture. And uh, I figure if I get the right culture, then I can attract the very best team. And, uh, and if I attract the very best team, then um, vision and strategy, you know, you don't have to rely on a single brilliant individual, which you know, I would would never characterize myself as. I'm surrounded by a bunch of bright people, so a team gets to really formulate the, the strategy and vision. And you know, if you got the right culture, the right team, and the right strategy and vision, the execution becomes becomes easy. So you know, I, I sort of focus on those roles. But this year, my big project is I call it Culture 2.0. Okay. Yeah, you know, being yeah you know, the most important uh, role um, for the CEO, in 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 my opinion, um, we we had this. Um, this mantra, which was, you know, we play to win, we take care of the customer, and work shouldn't suck, and that served us very well for the last for the last decade. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, we must have hired some 800 people in the last three years, and wow. you get people multiple countries, lots of different backgrounds, you know, different, you know, uh, different, uh, you know, different age, you know, different generational, and so you get, you know, sometimes you, you you have to reinforce it, and you go, you know, what served us for the last 10 years may not serve us for the next. So we've got this, you know, a new um, cultural paradigm where we look at, you know, passion, people, and performance. And we've articulated what that means. And my job this year is to really drive our culture 2.0 throughout the organization to really institutionalize it. Because we, you know, I believe that that's our, our, our strongest competitive advantage. So I want to just dig deeper in terms of this culture. It, it's a huge aspect of the business leaders for anyone listening. What I'm really interested is what made you think or why is it now this 2.0 versus... 10 years ago or when you were doubling up like was it is there a huge culture shift now no i think you know a lot of people think the uh, that, that culture should stay the same forever mm-hmm. and it necessarily has to change because you're maturing as a business everyone's maturing as a leader you know the the uh, the founder circle of people that were here 20 years ago are now 20 years older you know yeah. 20 years ago <laughs> you know, they didn't have kids and you know they didn't have mortgages and you know, so yeah, it necessarily has to change as uh, as the organization does but i think the uh, the idea is that you know, we, we found that 
you know, the way we had articulated before served us through a period where we were really in sort of a hyper growth, managing a bit of a chaos phase. And now that we are really sort of growing up as a company, um, we needed to really sort of change the way we define ourselves and we reward ourselves and, and how we behave as, you know, people in the organization that sort of that operating system of how we operated 1500 people versus, you know, 25 people. Talk to me about Point Click Care at 25 employees. I know at that point of your business, perhaps, and for the entrepreneurs that are listening out there, or even you know some executives that are building companies, sometimes you you know you're stuck with this, you're strapped with resources, and you're just looking to fill a role. To talk to me about how that looked like back then, and then when you had to switch, shift your focus, and really say, listen, I just got to get the best people around me now. Yeah, so in the early days, if you think about uh, when we really started to grow the company, between 95 and 2000, we were just dabbling in technology and nursing homes. We started to build our cloud solution in 2000 before anybody called it cloud. Right. SaaS, right? It was called jam everybody on one set of servers, <laughs> deliver it over the internet and charge them on a subscription basis. Um, but 2001, as we were you know, deep in uh, 2000 and 2001, we're deep into coding, there, there was zero ability to go and raise capital. Mm -hmm. which at the time was uh, horrific because you you know every two weeks you're trying to figure out how to make payroll but it it taught us a discipline right of how to bootstrap but when you we have no access to capital no bank no vc nothing because it was right after the dot com boom the only people you could hire was the people you could afford right and so you had to be really thoughtful on hey you know this person doesn't come to you with any skills yeah, they have shown no evidence they've done this before. They may not have the education that would fit necessarily. Right. But you have to go on the instinct that, you know, I, I, I think we maybe have found a diamond in the rough. And I'll give you a great example. Yeah. You know, still with us today, uh, our leader um, of sales for, for 20 years um, was hired from, he was living on his buddy's couch and in his car. We hired him from the beer store and had zero sales experience, barely got through his college degree. And didn't he wind up building a you know, multi-hundred million dollar sales organization? But you could tell at the time that he had sort of the, the instinct and the gut. Um, your gut just told you that you know, no matter what, he was going to have the grit to be able to succeed. And so we got lucky very early on with a bunch of people that we couldn't afford to pay very much, but were as committed to the end game as we were. And you know, the vast majority of those folks are still with us today. Finding those diamonds in the rough for, for folks running startups right now, they, they, like you must have gone through, and I'm only assuming, Mike, that you might have gone through a number of people before you found this, uh, this person. So lucky, uh, he was a, yeah, that diamond in the rough was employee number four. Wow. So we, and you know, employee number three, we had the same kind of luck with employee number five. So uh, you know, there are very few of the first 25 people that started here that are not still here today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we got, we got really lucky. Um, and we called it sort of the mafia method of hiring early on. If you can vouch for your buddy. Right then, uh, then uh, you know they're in because we didn't have a lot of time to go through big HR I'm checks, sure. and um, and no one's going to vouch for their lazy lazy cousin Jimmy. Right, they're going to only vouch for someone who they know is going to come in Deliver. and is going to carry their weight. Otherwise, it's on you. And so that mafia method of of referrals helped us uh, tremendously in the early days. Yeah, and when did you move away as an organization from the mafia method? How, how, what was your employee count at that time? Yeah, so the we didn't have anybody managing HR till we got to about a hundred employees. Oh wow! We would literally have people show up at the door on Monday because we were you know there was one year we added about fifty people on forty. 
And uh, Monday morning, you'd show up, there'd be five people standing there and go, who do you think you report to? And I'll go try and find you a desk and a laptop so you can start working. Uh, it was about 100 people that we finally decided we need somebody uh, in HR to really help us manage um, you know, uh, sourcing people and onboarding people and doing the things that, you know, that uh, you know, talent managers do. Mike, as companies grow in scale, and I'm sure you saw this through the life of Point Claire, but communications becomes a challenge. I mean, when you're in a room with five employees, you're just, you're just turning over their shoulder. But now at 1,500 employees or even as you scaled, what are you finding changed and, and what's happening now? Yeah, I think in the early days, um, you know, everybody is about the same age and they go eat at the same places and they go to the same pubs and you can you can resolve communication issues just by having beer and pizza Friday. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty straightforward. Um, and um, the chairman of our board, who's been uh, you know, a great friend and mentor for years, told me when we got to about 30 people, he goes, as you grow, your need for communication will be uh, exponential. And at the time, I sort of, yeah, no, that's fine. We've got this figured out. And uh, he couldn't have been more right. It's not linear. Um, you have to spend way more time communicating your message. You've got to, you know, seven times, seven different ways. And I feel, you know, to the point where I may be talking about what our, our, our strategy or what we're trying to accomplish. I'm trying to get a message out. And I feel like I've been repeating myself every day because I'm, I might do a short video and send it out to the staff, and then I'm talking about a town hall, and then I'm talking about a senior leadership meeting, and then you know, uh, you know, we're putting some you know, slide deck together, and then I and I feel like, you know, everyone's getting sick of me hearing this, but then you think about any single individual over a period of you know two quarters, they maybe heard it three times. Now That's I'm true. saying it every day because it could be in front of an investor, could be in front of a customer, could be senior leadership, but your you know your 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 typical employees. You know, they don't get they don't get you could ask them about it and you go you hear it every day they go no that's the first time I heard it so I think from my perspective and I feel like until I feel like everyone's sick of hearing me talk about it that I probably haven't communicated enough do you, do you think you'll find out or or do your employees tell you when they're sick of hearing it so I think about it this way right you mm -hmm. look at I mean it, it, it's always spectacular to me to watch the uh, you know the primary south of the border and watch watch what's going on. And you think about their stump speech. They go on and it gets reported on you know, 20 or 30 times a day. Right. And that goes on for, for years. So, you know, by, and, and so maybe people get sick of that after many, many months of it. You know, if somebody only has exposure to it you know, two or three times in a quarter or in two quarters, um, that's not too much. I mean, you, you just can't, if it's an important message, you can't communicate enough, which I think the second piece that was super important for me is, uh -huh. Take the message, and when you think you've got it simplified, simplify it again and simplify it again. When I, when I do a town hall, I think about – I usually limit it to three things I want people to walk away with. Sure. Even though there are many things, and everybody tries to get on the agenda. Can you talk about that? It's like, no. If there's three things. I'm going to have 1,500 people for an hour. They're going to listen to me. I want to make sure that we're not going to waste their time. It's a very, very expensive meeting. So I think about those three things, and I'll usually start off with a slide deck that might be 120 slides. Uh -huh. And by the time I'm done – other than you know, sort of the housekeeping slides, it'll be 10 or less. So it's do you simplify it and simplify it and simplify it because if you can't get it simplified to the point where you can easily articulate it to people who aren't living it every day, then it's too complex a message and nobody can, nobody can action it, nobody can you know, act on it. So um, you know, over, over the years, 
I found that with more people, the message has to be more and more simplified because you're not having that two-hour conversation at the pub about it and expect everybody has deep insight into the context and everything. So you really, as the numbers get bigger, you you got to forever simplify the message. So how are you enjoying this conversation? Mike's story is so inspiring. I, I really love the fact that how he started as, as a family business, a family unit. If you're enjoying this podcast, please sign up to our monthly newsletter where we share our latest interviews, events, and upcoming guests. Go to thebusinessleadership.com slash newsletter. Now let's get back to it. I mean, delivering the message to someone one-to-one is different because you're getting the Q&A as well. So delivering a keynote to 1,500 people, it has to be super simple that everyone could almost digest it and say, oh, let's go. Let's go with Mike. Let's do this. Yeah, no, and I think to the point where uh, when you get it right, you don't have a, a slide that has nine bullets on it. It's a picture mm-hmm. with maybe one sentence. So people go, I understand. Right. No, I mean, you get a slide up there that has eight bullets, you just put everybody to sleep, right? It's, um, um, and then it doesn't, doesn't mean that you're, you know, anybody who gets in front of that many people and starts reading out their slides ought to not be in front of those people because you're wasting everybody's time. They just send them the slide deck. Get up there with your simple message and then take your time to really reinforce it. You know, go, you know, the people understand it, you know. Um, communicate it three or four different ways so people go ah I didn't really get it the first now I understand and I think from my perspective I try to keep it as simple as a picture and maybe a couple words to, and then spend the time really trying to articulate the point you're getting across how long are you working on this or practicing or or really working on the pitch not the pitch but the message so I'll usually start um, you know maybe three weeks out and um and I'll put a little bit of time into it. I'll think through. I mean, a lot of my thinking goes on, uh, quite frankly, when I wake up in the middle of the night and I think through the stuff <laughs> okay. I want to communicate. I mean, that's how I work. Like, I'll put it together and then I'll, you know, it might, all my, it's not great for my, for my sleep health, but that's when I tend to process things. And then it's usually not till about two days out that I really solidify what I want. And I take this, this brain dump that's 150 slides and then just whoosh, narrow it down. It's, it's the pressure that helps me sure. get it narrowed the deadline. down. And then, okay, these are the three things I want to get to and then narrow it down. Now, but, that, but that's interesting. You, you consciously start thinking about the message and the story three weeks out, but really it th- sounds like you're throwing it all together about two days before, uh, before the that's talk. When, that's when the, 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 the final 80% gets done. <laughs> Mike, I, I, read, I read an article that you written recently, and it talks about you know, building a business and chasing, chasing sales and so I'm really curious. This was about chasing markets versus sales opportunities. Can, can you explain that to me a bit more? Yeah, I've you know I've I've seen this um, pattern repeat itself over and over, and I, I and I know the temptation. the The temptation when you're a bootstrap company, or even if even if you've got some funding, you, you know you don't want to dilute yourself and go and get your next round of financing. There's a real temptation instead of you know saying this is the market we're going after, we're going to go win that market. Something will come in from out of left field that isn't quite your target customer. They're a little bit different, and but they're excited and they're offering you, you know, something that's going to translate into real cash. And you know, if you're bootstrapped or you're early stage, you need that money, right? And the temptation is enormous, sure. enormous to to take it. And so, um, if you say yes, you start to head down a very dangerous path. Now, I'll, I'll give you the examples that I've seen in my world. At, I've seen p- 
people that have entered in our market, instead of narrowing on maybe it's a certain geography or a certain type of customer or a certain segment, they went in and they got their first customer and then somebody offered them a check and so they chased that one. And then they chased one that was you know, a bit different, different geography in my world, it's different regulations, could be a different province, different state, different country, different size, different type of provider. Mm. And um, all of a sudden, they've written more checks than they can cash. And I know the exact number. In my world, they get to serving about 150, 120 to 150 communities. And up to about that point, the committed efforts of the founders to work 24 hours a day to serve all of those custom requirements from customers that are, that are not exactly the same, right. that aren't in their target, they'll get to about that point. And, you know, in the early days, people, if you will react and do custom things for them, even though some of the core fundamental block and tackle stuff you don't do, they have enormous pa patience because you react so quickly. But then you've written too many checks and you're chasing everybody's custom requirement. And all of a sudden, those things that, you know, you tolerated before are really kind of annoying. It's like, hey, this car should have brakes. Hey, we should have, you know, automatic windows in this. Like the very, very simple stuff becomes annoying, so they're not getting the, the basic fundamental stuff, and they're not getting that custom treatment. And that's about the time that it all starts to fall down. The, the, the early customers go, listen, you reacted great. I loved it when I was your only customer, and now you got 150 people that are your custom customers, and this is all falling apart. So, you know, when you want to chase a market, figure out who your target is. Be very, very narrow in your target. That's not going to be your entire market. Your target is who you're going to go and absolutely delight. And once you get it right, they can be referenceable and you can rinse and repeat and go over and over, you know, and keep doing it over and over and over again. Don't be distracted by the check. I mean, in my early days, that it was, how about you guys get off the cloud? Not calling it cloud, but how about we host for ourselves? And I said, uh -huh. no, we're offering you a lot of money. No, the answer is no. And I'm glad we did. The temptation was enormous. We'll write you a big check. It's like, no, that deviates from our core business model. It's not what we do. It's not the business we're building. The answer is simply no. And then you go home and cry yourself to sleep because you <laughs> could really use the money to, yeah. to make yeah. payroll. But you, you need to have the discipline to focus on your, you know, win the market. Don't chase sales opportunities. But that's really interesting. I mean, for the entrepreneurs out there, especially the ones that are bootstrapping, I mean, you, you talk about it a lot. I mean, you talk about the temptation and the discipline. So how did you, like, understand this from the get-go in terms of in terms of saying no like just turning down turning down offers like that you know i think we had um it, it i'm not going to say it was easy it was extremely difficult uh, right right extremely difficult to do um uh, but we had conviction in um and where we were headed with the business we knew we had a, a pretty clear vision of what we, we were trying to build and had a pretty good idea how we needed to get there and with our limited resources and how difficult a challenge it was going to be for us to tackle the problem we wanted with our limited resources, we just knew that there's no way we could do, we could do, chase multiple things simultaneously. Right. And, um, and, and, it, and it wasn't easy, um, but we just, you know, had a strong enough conviction in where we were headed to be able to say no. And I'm only going to assume this, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. I mean, having that conviction, but also having probably mentors and advisors are probably telling you, listen, that's probably not where you want to go. Did you have that, that type of support around you? Yeah, you know, not, not really, because I'm not sure that you know, our informal advisors really understood what we were trying to do. You think about the early 2000s. We were, yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't obvious to everybody that you know, SaaS or cloud was going to own the world. They, they hadn't even you know, coined the, the phrase SaaS yet. Mm -hmm. So they'd be like, oh, well, like, you need the money. Like, maybe you should let them host it. So I'm not sure that we had people that were 
had the vantage point that you know my brother and I, as the co-founder, had, um, and the and the real clear vision of what we were trying to accomplish. Mike, we're in a in a time, and you talk about you know when startups or companies looking for another financing around or, or or making more money, but talk to me about creating that mindset of building a company that's durable for the long term versus versus being acquired. Yeah, I would. So this is you know, uh, uh, my opinion more than anything. Mm-hmm. My opinion is if you build a, a company uh, to be durable for the long term, it's going to be more valuable even in the short term. And uh, let me l- maybe define the two paradigms. Sure. One is you can build a company to flip. And I, you know, I've seen this before. I, I had a group of CEOs that came and I was hosting this group of you know, networking with these CEOs. And we were talking about the value of culture and uh, you know, at the break, he pulled me aside and said, you know, this is amazing. You've got a phenomenal culture. And I'm like, yeah, what's yours like? He goes, oh, no, I can't do any of this stuff. I go, why not? He goes, no, no, we're going to be sold in 12 months. And if we're not sold in 12 months, we're in a pile of trouble. And I went, I don't understand. He goes, this company was never built to be, you know, for the long term. It was built only to flip. And that means I don't invest in things like training and management systems and culture, like none of that stuff. We churn and burn people. Our turnover rate is high. Yeah. People have sharp elbows. We got a, you know, you know, hired guns in here. He goes, but, so I'm like, well, I guess if that's your business model, it's funny. He goes, he goes, the risk is though, the market's turned and I don't have a buyer in 12 months. Then the things I've underinvested in, like the customers and the employees and the systems that create sustainability, they're gonna start to collapse like a house of cards and and I run the risk of this company being worth very little after that. And so I would argue that if you build, even if you think that there's a natural acquire, I think if you start to invest in the things that build for a durable company, hopefully that when somebody, even if you, you know, somebody, you're likely a candidate to be bought out by a strategic, um, an, or another acquire, that they'll recognize the investments you've made in those things. And sometimes they'll, they may go, well, we're just going to juice this company and we can back those out. But I think if you can articulate the things that you've done that are production capacity related, so they're not for today's, you know, today's, you know, sales or delivery or product, but they're things you're investing in the, you know, the people for the future. Hopefully you'll get credit for that, but you'll certainly de-risk it so that you don't wake up on a house of cards two years down the road and go, wow, we haven't invested in these things, the markets are down, nobody's buying, and it all starts to crumble. When you and your brother launched this, how far down in the future did you see this company going? Like, did you foresee being, you know, 1,500 employees and growing? So, um, basically, yes, I could show you, I could show you decks from uh, back in, you know, 2002 where you talked about becoming the gorilla in the long-term care market. There was no rational reason why a yeah. couple of guys in, uh, you know, in, in a small office in Mississauga would think they were going to, you know, dominate the North American market. Um, part of it is just self-fulfilling prophecy. We just never stopped believing, never, and you know we had no no fallback position, so we just kept driving, uh, kept driving forward. Quick personal question: Can you name a person who had maybe some tremendous impact on you as a leader, or someone alive or not, who you look towards for inspiration when it comes to business leadership? Yeah, I mean, two two of my biggest mentors were my parents, and then they, uh, yeah, they're. They're they're very different, but they're both enormously inspirational. Yeah, my, my dad might be the the brightest businessman I've ever met. You can give him the way I would describe it is you could give him a thousand piece puzzle. You give you start throwing out one corner piece and four other pieces, and immediately he goes, oh yeah, no, this is a meadow and there's a stream over here, and then there's a bar. He just 
He's seen it so many times. Just brilliant. Could you know, incredibly quick study, and uh, I learned a ton from him. My early days starting the business, I lived in this basement, and we commuted on the GO train back and forth to Toronto. And I got my uh, my executive MBA on the on the GO train from Oakville to Toronto. And then uh, I even had my mother. Um, I had the privilege of you know working with her from you know two thousand and one till two thousand nine or two thousand and ten. And, uh, and what I got from her is she's got more grit than anybody I know. There is no, just no obstacle that can ever stop her. She'll just work around the clock. You know, you put a barrier in front of her. She'll go over it, under it, around it, through it. Um, and, uh, and I realized that, wow, you know, even if I don't have to be particularly bright, if, I'm, if I could just do what my mother does and just never stop until, <laughs> I, until you get to uh, be successful, then, um, um, then, you know, then, then I can also be successful. So I mean, you know, those are, those are two people that have, have really inspired me. But I think about you know business leaders, and you know, I think about people like Elon Musk and mm-hmm. you know, that kind of vision, and you know, think big, right? You know, let's go to Mars, let's save the planet, kind of stuff. And uh, I'm, I'm always inspired by that. Or uh, people like uh, Richard Branson, you know, everything he touches, he disrupts. You know, he does it in a way that, um, you know, unlike you know many business leaders that leave you know carnage behind them, and you know, all kinds of, um, you know. Uh, casualties behind them. Sure. I think he does it in a way that, that he doesn't do that and, and creates a, a positive force in, in everything he touches. Mike, fun question. And on the podcast, I, I love asking this because I'm always surprised in terms of the uh, the responses I get. But uh, if I were to ask any of your teams, your colleagues, you know, past, present, peers, what's the best leadership quality you have? What do you think they would say? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to say stuff like he's a visionary, he's wicked smart, um, <laughs> and all those sorts of things. Um, but I think um, uh, self-aware. Um, I think the you know, understanding uh, what I'm good at and what I'm not good at, and making sure that um, I cover off my blind spots. I don't pretend to be the things I'm not, and I, and I don't pretend to be the smartest guy in the room. And um, some. I think they would say I'm pretty in tune to that and really make sure that I get other people to do things I'm not good at or not passionate about um, and, uh, and let them run with it. Mike, what, so what else? Do you have any other special projects, some initiatives, or, or perhaps something fun that you're really excited about and, and looking forward to right now? Yeah, you know, in the business, like I'm all, I wake up every day, even it is, you know, as many years I've been in this, every day I look at the stuff we're trying to do for our industry and I get excited by, you know, we get the silver tsunami coming with, uh, you know, this huge influx of, you know, uh, an aging population that is going to need a tremendous amount of care. And I think the stuff we do every day makes a difference in the lives of millions of people. So I get excited about that. That hasn't changed in 20 years. On a personal level, you know, I, uh, with two kids and ski racing up north, I, um, you know, started. Uh, I've been working on a project with the uh, with, with you know one of my friends who uh, who also works here about putting a high performance ski training center up in, uh, in Blue Mountain. I mean, it I, it always amazed me how many uh, how many kids they're putting on the national team from a little ridge in Ontario, and I think with a little extra help we could uh, do even more of that. And so it's a little side project that I'd you know it's in the early planning stages that I that I like spending uh, you know spending some weekends and evenings on. Oh, that's really exciting. So, so what does that look like? Is that putting together like coaching teams and, and like... So I think it's actually uh, you know, a center that will allow people to do dry land training and um, simulated training uh, 12 months a year. 
you know, one of the biggest things I hear from coaches, and I'm no coach, is, you know, time on task is one of the biggest challenges. And we have a very short season here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you get a few kids who can afford it, you might be able to send out uh, out west or down to uh, South America to train. But if you had some training facilities that were local so that you didn't have to be a wealthy kid, you could still show up. And if you've got the, the aptitude and the attitude, um, you, can, you could train 12 months a year. Well, that's, that's really exciting. Be sure to keep us uh, in, in tune on that or updates when, when that launches. I would love to share that with our, with our community. But before we end, Mike, I'd love for you to share some final thoughts, observations. Ideally, what we'd like to get is some actionable recommendations that you could share with either the entrepreneur that's growing or scaling with, with a grandest vision uh, or, or, or an emerging leader that, that's coming up on the ranks right now. You know, typically I would fall back on the, uh, you know, anybody who's, um, no matter what you're doing, you know, just, you know, uh, you know, focus, especially in a business, focus on your target, you know, stop, you know, creating mediocre products and services, create great ones and, you know, pick your narrow market and start winning there. But you know, we sort of hit that on that already. But, you know, one of the things that, um, that I, that I, out of that, the book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all yeah, good. Subtle art of not giving an F um, <laughs> was something that you know I, I I I've been trying to articulate for years, and I think they they helped me with it. Which is you know I get a lot of you know young people, and I love millennials, but uh, you know, millennials have an expectation of rising through the ranks quickly, mm-hmm. and I get the wow, Mike, I, I want your job. Well, I mean, it looks pretty fun. I mean, I want my job too. <laughs> and, and, and I talked to my uh, talked to my wife about it. She goes, "Yeah, but you know, none of them want to do what you had to do and the pain and suffering you had to go through to get there." And I went, "Yeah, that's the thing." And I, don't, you know, a lot of them maybe didn't see that. And so one of the one of the things that you know that yeah articulate is you know, don't fall in love if you see yourself as a leader, see yourself as an entrepreneur, you see yourself as wealthy. It doesn't even matter as you see yourself with a six pack. Don't fall in love with that. Fall in love with the pain and suffering it takes to get there. If if your goal is a six pack. Don't fall in love with the six-pack. Fall in love with uh, never eating a carb and going to the gym for four hours a day and not hanging out with your friends and not drinking beer. Fall in love with that, and then you'll get the end result. And if you want to build a business from scratch and bootstrap it, you know, don't fall in love with the end game. Fall in love with the sleepless nights, you know, the, the struggle and the grind that it takes to get there. And, you know, listen, there, there's a, I have romantic memories of startup. I mean, I don't ever want to do it again, but <laughs> it, it, there's a lot of fun there. And I fell in love with the actual suffering to get there. So I guess my comment would be, yeah, don't, don't fall in love with the end game. Fall in love with the, you know, the hard, the, you know, the suffering and the work it takes to get there. Oh, that's that's amazing, and thank you for sharing. That's great insight, Mike. But to close, can you tell us where you could find more information about you, your company, or anything else you'd like to share with the community today? Sure. If yeah, if you want to find out more about Point Click Care, just go to pointclickcare.com. And uh, you know, I've been publishing uh, some articles on uh, LinkedIn, so you can find me at uh, Mike Wessinger on LinkedIn. And um, you know, and I'd be happy to accept you as a friend. And you know take any of my articles for for what they're worth with the caveat that you know we may have been successful here in spite of those things not because of those things we're we're just not sure that's great mike well it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for joining us on the business leadership podcast great appreciate thank you very much that's it biz leaders thank you for joining me on the business leadership podcast episode number 63 with mike wessinger if you want to learn more about mike point click care or anything we discussed, please go to thebusinessleadership.com slash 063. Our sponsors today are Pungo Payments, a business payment solution that instantly sends disbursements 
and electronic transfers at a fraction of the cost of checks and bank transfers. Go to thebusinessleadership.com front slash pungo to learn more. The Business Leadership Podcast is a friend of the ITWC Podcast Network and supported by our media partners, IT World Canada. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, or wherever you're listening to the podcast today. Thank you again. Edwin signing off. Thank you for listening to the Business Leadership Podcast at thebusinessleadership.com. Thank you.